All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm here today joined in the studio by my parish priest, Father Jim Barron. He's a priest here in the Diocese of Colorado Springs and pastor at Holy Apostles Catholic Church. Father, welcome back to the show. It's the first time you've been on a video episode of Creedal Catholic. Uh, first, thank you, thank you for letting me use the uh, the Blessed Carlo Acutis studio here at Holy Apostles. So. It's a good use for it. Thanks for having <laughs> for me back sure. on. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about yourself. I know you've been on before, but for listeners or viewers who are watching this for the first time, tell me more about your background and where you come from and what you do. Okay. Well, one of my greatest privileges is to be on podcasts. Of course, yeah. With Zach. Uh, so my second greatest privilege is I am the pastor of Holy Apostles Parish here in Colorado Springs. I grew up here in Colorado, although I was born in Florida. Uh, I will be ordained a priest for, it'll be 10 years this coming June, and um, it's, it's been a blessing, much like being a parent. It's not always fun, but it is good, and uh, it's, yeah, I, I've got some, um, there's so many things that I've learned along the way, and the Lord has certainly stretched me uh, in this, in this vocation, which, you know, I suppose that's what every vocation is meant to do. It's how God sees us getting to heaven, or how he plans for us to, uh, to become saints, and there is no sanctity without uh, without a little stretching. When you said it's like being a parent, but in a, in a way you are a parent, right? You're, you have a spiritual fatherhood for all the souls here in the parish, which is why we call you father. Mm-hmm. And in I mean, in some respects, it's it's more it's, it's you know it's more uh, more of an imitation of God the Father than biological parenting in the sense right? because because you're responsible for, people, for people's souls, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, with all of that, you know, there are so many analogies and comparisons of the, the ongoing senses of responsibility, although the list of those responsibilities might be different. Sure. But um, there's some very important, it, there's a reason why we use familial terms for the vocations within the church that mm-hmm. don't have biological expression, but certainly the spiritual analogy is, is very appropriate. Yeah. Now, did you know you wanted to be a parish priest when you were seeking ordination, or did you think about joining a religious order at any point? I had thought about uh, the, the Dominicans and the Benedictines very briefly. But, uh, but it just seemed to be clear that the Lord was calling me on to diocesan priesthood. Yeah. And did you know from a young age that you wanted to be a priest, or was this something you discerned later? I was open to it in fifth grade. Okay. And, pretty uh, young. It was, was young. Yeah. 12 years old or so? Yes, just yeah. about. Okay, cool. But then in, in seventh and eighth grade, I wanted nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. I found girls really interesting, sports, dating, so cool exciting, stuff. Yeah. So exciting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then actually I was going to go on to architecture. Oh, okay. And then my last year of high school, I was invited to visit a seminary up in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I went for a 48-hour weekend and had a strong experience in adoration that that's where the Lord was calling me to be in the seminary. Whether or not I should be a priest at that point wasn't very clear. But uh, to give him that exclusive attention in the seminary was uh, that was a very strong call. That's great. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who have who have experienced a call to religious life in adoration. Uh, there's a seminarian in this diocese who I know you know who has the story of being in Mexico in Eucharistic adoration and hearing an, an almost audible call to the priesthood, which is pretty cool. There's another yeah. person who's entering religious life from this parish, uh, similar for her, uh, mm-hmm. just fell in love with Jesus through Eucharistic adoration and then yeah. discerned a call to the vocation. So that's really cool. Uh, well, Father, thanks for joining. I wanted to have you on because a couple months ago, I'm releasing this Monday of Holy Week, so I think about two full months ago now, second Sunday in Ordinary Time, so back in mid-January, this parish had a personal stewardship day. And I didn't know this was coming up. My wife and kids and I showed up on Sunday morning, and, and we saw in the bulletin it's personal stewardship day. And I've been in parishes before. I think pr- pretty much every parish in which I've been has a stewardship day. 
And I thought that's what this was going to be, where we come in and the, the priest announces that it's stewardship day and the homily is about giving money to the church, et cetera. And now all that's well and good. We need to give money to the church. We, there's a biblical injunction to tithe. Uh, the, you know, one-tenth of, of everything that we have belongs to God uh, and should be given back to God. I mean, really, everything we have belongs to God. But there's a biblical injunction specifically to tithe uh, 10% to God. And so that's what I thought we were in for on this personal stewardship day. And then you launch into your homily, and it turned out to be something very, very different. And it was all about personal stewardship, so not financial stewardship, not about giving our resources, our material resources to the church back to God, but rather taking care of ourselves, of our persons. So this is the first time I've seen this done in a parish. You mentioned in the homily that this is the fruit of lots of just sort of discernment, uh, pastoral conversations you've had, uh, time in the confessional, hearing people talk through uh, what they're going through and confess their sins. Mm-hmm. So talk to me more about that sort of as a pastor. Where did this idea of personal stewardship come from? Sure. Well, it is set within the context of stewardship as an expression of our Christian discipleship. Mm-hmm. Stewardship is a very biblical idea. Jesus speaks in parables about stewards as a parable or as sort of an analogy for the, the account that we will have to give to God for all the gifts that he has given to us. And so whether it's understanding our stewardship of God's creation, which is one of our focuses that we'll do in April, uh, stewardship of uh, the gift of prayer and the stewardship of our faith, that we are gratefully receiving these gifts from God and taking responsibility to make the most of them. And so, yeah, certainly within that is our finances, and we do focus on stewardship of finances in the fall. But we want to make sure that when we use that word stewardship, it isn't just code word for father's going to ask for money. Yeah. Um, because otherwise it does impoverish the real rich sense of living our discipleship as stewards. So uh, we have various areas of stewardship that we focus on throughout the year, and it's an opportunity to preach on it, to focus in prayer, and to make a commitment in these areas to decide this is how I'm going to be a steward in intentional, concrete ways. Well, the personal stewardship seems to fill a gap when we talk about you know, stewardship of prayer, faith, vocations, finances, God's creation, service, oftentimes overlooked in that is stewardship of our own selves. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you know, God gives us uh, care, first and foremost, responsibility for our own souls first. Uh, and that's not in a selfish way over and above everybody else. Right. But as Jesus says, what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? Yeah. And so to focus on personal stewardship is recognizing that we have to take care of ourselves holistically. And that's a very important expression of the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And so we look at that, and that's oftentimes overlooked, mistakenly understood, as if loving myself is necessarily a bad thing. There's an important distinction that theologians and spiritual masters make about love of self or love for self, rather, versus self-love. Self-love is something that is more akin to the sin that turns us inward and away from God. Mm. And that's not what we want. The love for self is that uh, second great command to love my neighbor as myself. And so we wanted to start a conversation to be able to unpack that a little bit and set the right context for Christians to understand what does it mean to take care of myself. Um, Last thing I'll say, and then I'll kind of uh, throw the ball back into your court, Um, we also hear in the world around us a lot of talk about Mm self-care and that's a that can be a very important concept 
but it can get bizarre as well. Sure. And it can look very much like selfishness if it's not rightly understood. So we wanted to, we decided to use this term personal stewardship as a Christian approach to this conversation about really adequately caring for myself in a healthy and holistic way. Uh, and so we approach it from that and, uh, and really begin the conversation as this is that way that we carry out that second part of the right. second great commandment. So I want to stay on this distinction between self-love and love, love for self. Yeah, you can, I think that's the term that we're sort of settling on, okay. even though we're meaning one thing and you got to be careful about sure, how sure. you refer to it because it can be mistakenly understood. So let's just unpack it a little bit more, yeah. right? So yeah. Uh, it seems that oftentimes we err in one of two directions, right? One is to deny the self, and this is, uh, I think, for example, of a lot of the insights of Eastern religions and what Buddhist monks do, right? Mm -hmm. Total self-denial. Mm -hmm. I will go without food for 40 days. I will try to achieve an enlightened meditative state, et cetera. And that's a, that's a denial of self, right? Mm -hmm. That's just strict asceticism because the body is bad and all of the body's desires are bad and lead to bad things. Right. The second one, which is, I think, much more common in the West, is to say, no, I, this is actually self-love. Everything that I want, I should have. Indulging. Right, exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. so, so rather than saying that everything that the body wants is bad, it's everything that the body wants is good. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it's a, it's a dangerous idea, obviously, to err in either direction. But from a pastoral perspective, how do we distinguish between love for self and self-love, if we're going to use those terms, right? Sure. Because I think... Probably for the most part, people in a modern Western American parish don't struggle with the asceticism side. <laughs> there probably are there are, there are some probably yeah, right, but I think few. generally our modern American mindset le leads us more towards this uh, this self love perspective, mm -hmm. where everything that I want is good. Yeah. Uh, all of my all of my bash all of, all of my passions all of my desires are good, and I should fulfill them because I deserve that because I'm a, I'm a wonderful human being. Um, created by God, that part's true, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but but everything that my body wants, I should act on mm -hmm. because of that. So, how do you distinguish between love for self, self love? I mean, what what? How do those things look different? Sure, sure. Uh, some of it is well, not some of it. All of it is ultimately rooted in the fact that we can't fix ourselves, let alone adequately diagnose ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, the Second Vatican Council, Gaudium et Spes, twenty two, I believe, it says. Man only underst understands himself fully in the light of Christ. So Jesus shows us what it means so to just, be perfect. Real quick, so we, uh, Larry Chap and I, who's a friend of mine, he has a blog called Gaudium et Spes 22. Oh, nice. And uh, he and I do a monthly conversation on this podcast. Yeah. He's talking about exactly that. He named his blog that because of those words that everything only makes sense in light of the incarnate word. Yes, absolutely. And this, this topic in particular, yeah. because Jesus Christ is perfect God and perfect man. Mm -hmm. And so we understand what perfect humanity looks like in Christ. Yeah. And so, yeah, that idea that we can't evaluate or diagnose ourselves accurately, the more open to grace and on the road to conversion we are, the better perspective we get of what human life should look like. Right. So with that idea, I like to fold in something that uh, the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson says that we have to treat ourselves like we are someone we're responsible for helping. Yeah. And so with that sense of, I know what it looks like to be a good human being, or at least I have a better idea. If my best friend who I really love and who I want to help get to heaven was going through this particular circumstance, what advice would I give them? And then do I love myself enough to take that right. same advice? Right. That's proper love for self. That's personal stewardship. Yeah. Versus self-love would be kind of coddling myself, right. indulging myself in, in the form of self-destructiveness. Yeah. And this helps 
establish the virtue in the middle where, yeah, sometimes if I'm just going 100 miles an hour, burning the candle at both ends, I need to tell myself, slow down. Yeah. You're not doing yourself any favors. If I'm indulging every, every whim, if I'm scratching every itch, then yeah, I'm not doing myself any favors either. And so to look at it almost from that detached third person perspective can be helpful yeah. if we understand again what human flourishing ought to look like. And we see that ultimately in Christ. Right. Yeah, that advice from Jordan Peterson is helpful for me to think about it a little bit, right? And, and we think about what Jesus says about the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself, like you said. And we often don't think about that second part to also love yourself. But what, what Peterson's saying sounds like all, you know, almost a, a reversal of those two things, right? Love yourself as you love your neighbor. Um, and that makes sense to me. But I wonder, I wonder how you would pastorally approach someone who just has the wrong ideas about humanity from the get-go, and so their friend says, you know, I'm not happy in my marriage anymore. I need self-fulfillment, so I need to, to, to find something else that will work for me, find someone else who will work for me. Yeah. And this person says to their friend, yes, you should do that, right? Because, uh, because your happiness is paramount, right? If that person treats themselves the way they treat their friend, they're, they're going to go astray, right? right? So pastorally, how do you kind of handle that challenge? Yeah, it, it's not an infallible criteria. Right. Uh, it can be misapplied, certainly. Yeah. And so, you know, every situation is going to have its own nuances and distinctions. But if somebody were to start walking down that road and then, by the grace of God, ask somebody else about it, you know, mm-hmm. me, a priest, somebody who, you know, who cares about them right. and their ultimate good, it would be worthwhile walking through that. Of course, you can't paint with too broad of a brush stroke. If there's physical abuse, if there's a deep toxic element in that relationship, maybe yeah. a physical separation, okay, that may be necessary. We can talk about that. Um, but to also consider the fact that God does some of his most marvelous and powerful work through struggle. Mm-hmm. And he invites us to develop our personalities by our free choices, which includes working through things, right. discovering the, the weak spots, yeah. filling up the valleys, leveling the mountains. And um, you know, I love Viktor Frankl's insights with Man's Search for Meaning that um, you know, the greatest expression of our freedom is the decision to adopt an attitude in the face of any given circumstance. And if I can adopt this attitude of, I'm going to find a way to try to at least make this work. And if it fails, it's not going to be because of my lack of trying. Right. Um, it, with marriage, it takes two to tango. Yep. And sometimes one spouse just checks out. And that's, that's really painful, uh, but it's a reality. But if both are willing to work, that's a great opportunity to start to um, heal wounds that were there from the start, relearn how to interact. And by putting in the work to try to discover how to relate to one another in a new way, your personality becomes different. It becomes better, more full. Um, And we become better. Marriages become stronger, to use this example, having gone through that work. Sure, yeah. Um, It's never like you go back to the way things were before conflict. You actually grow through that conflict to become stronger and in many ways more real and grounded than it ever was. So with that, yeah, there's, if somebody were to ask that question or sort of bring that situation up, I would try to help them to see that your happiness now, or at least what you understand it, might need to go through this whole challenge to become enriched, to understand a deeper level of what happiness actually looks like. Right. Yeah, a few weeks in, a few weeks ago on the show, I had Leah Labresco Sargent on, mm-hmm. and she's written a lot for you know, First Things. She had, has a recent op-ed in the New York Times uh, and a recent article in the Plow magazine, Plow Quarterly, which is a, a magazine of Christian thought. 
Um, and one of the things I talked to her about, one of the things that her piece, or the, the main theme of her piece in Plow was that humans are interdependent beings, that none of us exists on our own, what we would call atomistically, right? We're not just uh, atoms out there colliding like billiard balls. We actually have uh, complicated webs of interconnectedness that, uh, interconnectedness that hold us all together. Mm -hmm. And I think from a pastoral perspective, um, you can tell me if this is true or not, but it strikes me as, uh, as helpful to help people understand that, that their own good is not fulfilled in seeking simply their own happiness, because that will only end in misery. Rather, their own good is found in seeking their true happiness, which is found in bettering the relationships around them. So in the context of someone who's you know, not being satisfied in their marriage, uh, it might help for them to realize that the end of marriage, the purpose of marriage, is not their own happiness from mm -hmm. the beginning. Yeah, right? and they may, may need to recalibrate their understanding of happiness. Right. You know, is it just satisfaction with getting what I think I want? Yeah. And yeah, as I said, the Lord does some of His finest work expanding our understanding of what it is we think we want right. to kind of discover what it is we truly want. You know, we can we can be we can have our environment exactly how we arrange it for ourselves mm -hmm. and still be deeply miserable. Oh, totally, yeah. Well, let's talk about, about sort of the categories of personal stewardship, because in your homily, you outlined several of these. Mm -hmm. I think you started with spiritual stewardship, right? I mean, how is my relationship with God? Am I giving God the time that he deserves? Am I making an effort every single day to reconsecrate myself to him? You also talked about um, intellectual or psychological stewardship, right? Am I trying to grow in the knowledge and love of God? Yeah. Uh, you talk about emotions, and you had that quote from, uh, I forget who it was, but I think it was, don't, don't let your emotions, don't kill your emotions, but don't let your emotions kill you. Or yeah, something John like that. Donne. Okay, John, yep. the poet John Donne, yeah. Yep. Um, and then there's, of course, relational stewardship, which ties to the point we were just making. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important one. In, in the context of a parish, uh, parish life and um, in a Catholic who's going to a parish, how, how do you recommend they maintain or sort of um, prioritize relational stewardship? Sure. With, as, I, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of this is the fruit of what I've heard in confessions as well as pastoral conversations. And relationships, you know, they're so necessary, but we also are interacting with other broken people. Mm. And we are operating in an environment that is, it's been accurately described as frenetically intemperate that there is kind of no order or rhythm of life. If you kind of list off your different priorities and relationships, you would have almost as many overlapping expectations and rhythms and patterns of life. And we try to navigate our way through these different um, structures and strata, and we end up sort of feeling stretched and pulled in every direction. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, in smaller communities, you tend to have more of a similarity in patterns of life as well as expectations, rhythms, ways of doing things. People kind of get up around the same time. They go to bed around the same time. Mm -hmm. They'll have, um, especially in smaller, older traditional communities where life is arranged around liturgical celebrations or feasts of the year. Um, that makes a big difference because one, those are decisions that you don't have to make. Like right. when are we gonna go on vacation? Well, we've got all of Easter week off that yeah. nobody works. Right. So, and so that's our time off. Yeah. Um, but it also just respects the human need for things like rest and structure. Um, without that, we really have to be a lot more intentional about establishing it for ourselves. And that includes our, our relationships and establishing healthy boundaries for them. Um, so much of God's work in the Old Testament is establishing a way of life for his people. Mm -hmm. Again, feasts, rhythms, right. you will do this at this time, you won't do this ever. Yeah. Uh, and, and God, knowing our human nature, establishes a way of life because it's within that 
that we become more open to God's grace and right. to hearing the word, to receiving the, the good seed in the, the appropriate soil. But with our relationships, he also establishes uh, you will interact with these people. You won't interact with those people. Right, right. You know, establishing those those boundaries because they're just some relationships that aren't good for us. Mm-hmm. And many of our relationships, we not, might need to reestablish healthy boundaries because they can become codependent. Sure. They can be toxic. They can be dissipating and even obstacles to our own spiritual growth. And then some relationships we might shy away from that we might need to invest more into. And so it's really an intentional, prayer-filled approach to this idea of creating boundaries, structure, intentionally living my relational life. Uh, they don't just happen. We have to invest in, in the ones that are worth investing into and then also perhaps pull away from the ones that aren't healthy for us. Yeah, and I think there's an important distinction here between what you're saying and what a sort of uh, modern secular therapist might say. The words kind of sound the same, right? Some relationships are toxic, some are helpful, some strengthen you, but the ends are different, right? Because a secular therapist might say this relationship is toxic because it is not allowing you to fulfill what you want to fulfill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what you're saying is this relationship might be toxic because this relationship is pulling you farther away from God mm-hmm. rather than closer to God. Mm-hmm. And because God is the ultimate good, God is the one in which we find true happiness, true fulfillment, that's why we would say those relationships are toxic if they're pulling you farther away from God, right? Yes. Yeah, for example, in the seminary, you've got these college-age men who are on fire for the faith and yet not quite fully formed, and some of them think, well, yeah, I'm going to go evangelize to the women's dorm on campus. That's going to be a great way to share the gospel. Bad idea. Bad idea. Bad idea. Bad idea. Yeah. You're not ready for that right. yet. Yeah. Um, and so that's a good example of, yeah, you know, so the, the aspiration might be good, mm-hmm. but there's just something about it that really, you know, is not. And uh, so with, with that, the, the psychologists, they tend to, if they don't have an end in mind of what human flourishing ought to look right. like, uh, they tend to just sort of settle on general well-being. Mm-hmm. And does this relationship disturb my sense of peace and well-being? And it might be a very necessary, healthy relationship where I'm challenged by somebody to quit some nonsense that I've started to act out. Um, but that psychologist might say, no, don't listen to them. Right. They're, they're, they're not letting you be you. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're, we're saying something different because we are looking at the end result of sanctity, our life in Christ. Yeah. And at the same time, we also recognize that, yeah, there are some things that we're never going to be able to uh, manage in an, to an ideal state. And so how do we invite God's grace into that and allow it to work through those unideal scenarios? Because yeah. we can't manage and sort of manipulate everything to be exactly how we want it to be. Now, you mentioned human flourishing, which is an idea that finds its root all the way back in Aristotle, what, what he called eudaimonia. And it also strikes me here that the Christian understanding of eudaimonia or human flourishing is very different from the sort of secular uh, world, uh, secular mindset's view of eudaimonia, because we think of human flourishing not as the state for an individual, but as a state for a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a collective thing, again, going back to our ideas of interdependence. So you cannot have human flourishing by yourself. Which, I mean, that, that's, again, an Aristotelian idea. I mean, it's a Christian idea, but Aristotle also talked about this. Uh, he, he was not a Christian. Um, and described humans as social animals. So we think about human flourishing that way. I think the modern idea of human flourishing says that humans need to do, each individual human needs to be free to do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked previously in homilies about freedom for versus freedom to. Um, so the, the one is sort of a libertine mindset, right? I'm free to do anything that I want. Um, the other is a, is a sort of virtue-driven mindset, a Christian mindset that says I'm free for this. I'm free... 
for obedience to God, I'm free for the service of my fellow man, et cetera. And I think mm-hmm. that idea has to guide all of our ideas of personal stewardship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, the freedom, too, is it, it's sort of the, one of the rotten fruits of the Enlightenment because yeah. it's, it's kind of that Cartesian separation of thought from the reality of the world around me. And I realize I said freedom, too. It's probably better to say freedom from, which is, I think, the, the, the words that you've used, right? Because you're, you're, you're free from the, these oppressive, restrictive laws and prohibitions right. to do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Right, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a license in many ways, right. but it sees reality of the world apart from my thought and my perspective as a potential threat. And so I have to establish boundaries against anything outside of my thought and keep that at a limit. And, you know, if you think about Descartes' uh, experience where he came up with the I think, therefore I am, right, right. he went into a room, tried to darken it, sat in a chair and tried to deaden any sensibility of the world around him because yeah. he thought it could be deceptive. And so we see reality as almost an enemy. Right. And it's, as I say, a rotten fruit of the Enlightenment is this freedom to this libertinism, uh, this license is whatever I can conceive of in my mind as the standard for what my happiness is. Mm, yeah. And it divorces my identity in my mind from my identity in the world and my place in the world. And w- whereas a realistic approach or realism, philosophical realism, which would be Aristotle, St. Thomas Aquinas, right. it sees I am necessarily in relationship to the world and the world has to factor into my identity. Um, there is no separation of that. And I think there, we can spiderweb into all sorts of other consequences of the opposite mentality. But from this, we can understand not only a sense of responsibility, but also adequately account for how I'm influenced yeah. by my world, sure. um, or by the world. And it, it really does challenge me to get out of myself as if I were the pole position, as, as if I were that infallible center of the universe right. to, capable of evaluating everything. Um, and in that, I become free to live in reality. Mm. You know, it's something that isn't a threat, and it's demanding. The more I respond to that demand and grow in virtue and am able, capable of uh, adequately meeting my environment, my personality becomes more full. Mm. My humanity becomes developed in that, my character. Um, and with that, I'm able to meet any circumstance that life may throw at me versus the other becomes so guarded and defensive. Right. And anything that I don't like becomes something that I have to tune out. I can't take it anymore. And so I become less free. Yeah. Um, but even though I consider that license as the epitome of freedom, it becomes ultimately restrictive because the world in which we live is demanding and will conflict with my constructed world yeah. somehow. You know, we see this with all, a lot of the social issues going on now and with some of the... Um, the rubber hitting the road with cancel culture. Yeah. Well, that conflicts with how I think the world ought to be. Therefore, that's limit, limiting my freedom somehow. That has to be eliminated. Sure. Whereas the freedom for is able to account for things that even conflict and contradict mm-hmm. what I understand to be true, but it's able to process it and integrate with it somehow. Yeah. Now, I like your point as you were, as you were uh, describing that and sort of walking through how the Christian looks at reality as it is. Uh, it occurred to me that going back to these uh, these sort of various mindsets, right? The the ascetic says the things of this world, reality itself, is in some ways an obstacle to fulfillment, mm-hmm. and the uh, the person who pursues a path of self love rather actually says that's not true at all. In fact, rather than being obstacles to my fulfillment, these things are the ultimate ends of my fulfillment. Like if I pursue these material things, if I pursue the world around me, that is where I find fulfillment. 
And then I think the Christian view, and correct me if you think this is misstated at all, is to say that the, the things around us, the material things that we have, are, are goods in and of themselves because they're made by God, but they're not ultimate goods. The ultimate good is God. And so those things become means of our fulfillment by virtue of the fact that they can point us to God. And the life well lived is one in which uh, it is lived in such a way that the material world around us actually points us to God. Certainly, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with the, the Christian perspective. The, the other two, I would say, I would characterize them as both spiteful or hateful of the world's goods, but for different reasons. Yeah, okay. The one, it's they're good in as much as they fulfill me and satisfy me. That's the self-love one. Yeah, yep. and in as much as they don't, I reject them. Yeah. And they become, there's too much of a burden put on those things as if they could fulfill that deepest longing of our yeah, hearts. That's, that's and fair. so that's sort of a hateful approach to it yeah. because it's it's approaching it very contrary to what it's capable of fulfilling in the first place. It's it's a false expectation that is going to wind up in resentment and sort of a general ennui right. uh, in, in our own appraisal of the world if that's our approach. So I think, yeah, I would... You go too far to the left or too far to the right, you wind up at the same spot anyway. Right, and right. so I think the... The horseshoe theory, right? Yeah, I think if you have the ascetical rejection of the material world or the uh, the overindulgence of it as if its purpose were, were for my satisfaction. Yeah. And then because it becomes a selective rejection anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, I mean, the Christian way, the way of virtue is always in the middle. It's, yes, we receive gratefully the things of this world, but we allow them to pass at the same time because we realize that they are not permanent. They are not to be mistaken for their source. Right. That totally makes sense. Well, as we wrap up this conversation, I have a question for you, uh, just as a, as a Christian pastor, as a, a pastor of a Catholic church. Uh, I'm selecting this week, Holy Week, to release this for two reasons. One, it uh, might be a great time, Holy Week, to sort of intensify some of our personal disciplines that we've been exercising and practicing through Lent as we work up to uh, the Lord's Passion at the end of this week, and then Easter Sunday, of course, on Sunday. Um, but two, uh, it also might be the tendency of some, and I'm including myself here, to reach Easter and be like, that's it, great, all my disciplines are out the window, I made it, I survived the 40 days of Lent, let's go, it's no holds barred, just uh, just feasting everything. And I love feasting, feasting's great, but um, what words would you have as a pastor for advice on people who are thinking about personal stewardship? Maybe maybe uh, they're coming through Lent and, and thinking, um, A, either this is really hard and I can't wait to give it up again after Easter, mm -hmm. stop doing it, or B, this has been really fruitful, spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually, whatever, uh, and I wanna keep doing this, uh, but I won't have the framework of Lent to sort of bound it anymore. So yeah. what would you say about someone who's in one of those two positions? Sure, sure. Um, I'm going to use, I guess, an analogy to help illustrate my point. Uh, the, the military has tended to move away from their physical fitness tests where you could just work out for a couple weeks, pass the tests, and then get fat and flabby again. Yeah. They're trying to make it so that you have to stay in shape year-round. So that's an analogy for, you know, Lent is a time of intense spiritual shaping up. Um, and it's good. You know, we want to have those spiritual, you know, defined muscles and everything that keep the razor sharp again. Kind of like a deployment or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and so it, it is set apart for a reason so that we might be able to intensely focus on yeah. it, climaxing in a particular way in, the, in Holy Week, to your point. Uh, but at the same time, spiritual fitness is a year-round right. uh, It's a year-round reality. It's something that we have to maintain. And so while we may justly relax some of our Lenten practices, um, you know, it's not something we should just kind of abandon altogether. 
you know, Easter, we prepare for Lent to celebrate Easter more fully. Right. And we don't celebrate Easter by just sort of sheer indulgence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do feast and we need to feast. I think feasting is a great way to evangelize the culture because our culture sort of indulges in everything. It doesn't know how to enjoy anything. Yeah. Um, and so to actually, through self-denial, find ways to increase our enjoyment of things uh, that are worth enjoying. But at the same time, to really recognize these things are only worth enjoying and their goodness will only be maintained in as much as they help draw us to God. Right. You know, it, it's not the, the, the chocolate bunnies are not the end in and of themselves. <laughs> yeah. You know, my, uh, you know, my, my weekly cigar or, you know, a nice glass of wine is not, uh, we, we use those things to help elevate us right. and help elevate our moods and draw our time, our minds into God. Um, and so, yeah, we, we feast well, but we, we don't let these, uh, things take over or, uh, take us away from the whole trajectory of our lives, which is that ongoing, uh, never-ending personal stewardship, which has its end really only holiness and fullness of life in God. Yeah, totally makes sense. Good words to end on. Thank you so much, Father, for joining me today. Always Thanks, appreciate Brad. having you on the show. My pleasure. Uh, I know that Lent is a very busy time for priests, and Holy Week even more so. So we'll be praying for you this week as you Thank have all, you. The, all the services to do and as your uh, practices really ramp up as well. So to my listeners and viewers, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Credo Catholic. If you have any thoughts on personal stewardship and would like to share them with me, let me know. You can uh, let me know in the comments below if you're watching this on YouTube or send me an email if you're listening on podcast. Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. If you have a question for Father Jim, I'd be happy to pass that on. So just, again, email me, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com, and I will reach out. Thank you once again. Thank you, Zach. And until next time, God bless you. 